Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm going to tell you a story uh, that I heard it was a true story, but you may not believe it. So this is Danny's Believe It or Not, right? Uh, so it's presented to me as a true story, but a pastor and his family had a pet kitten. Charlie, you like kittens, don't you? I love them. A pastor and his family had a pet kitten. Well, wouldn't you know that one day the kitten climbed up in the tree and got stuck? And for about an hour, the pastor did everything he knew to try and get that kitten to come down out of the tree, but to no avail. Kitten wouldn't come out of the tree. So finally, Pastor Daddy had a great idea, or he thought it was a great idea. He took a rope, and he tied one end to the tree and the other to his car. Then he got in the car and began to slowly drive forward a bit. Now, you probably know what he was thinking. I'll bend the tree branch down. The kitten will come down with the branch, and I'll be able to step out of the car with it parked and go and grab the kitten and bring it out of the tree. Um, So that was his hope. But things didn't go according to plan. Of course not, right? So as he was driving his car forward, he suddenly heard the rope snap. And he jumped out of the car and saw the tree swaying back and forth. Like it, you know, the tree had come down, and when it snapped, the tree had gone like this, you know, back and forth. And so, um, but he didn't see any sign of the kitty. No sign of the kitty. So mortified, he looked in the backyard, no kitty. He looked in the front yard, no kitty. Later in the day, he put up signs on the telephone poles. Nobody called about kitty. Kitty didn't come back. So two days later, he was in the grocery store, and he saw something a little strange. There in front of him in the checkout line was one of the ladies of the church. And she was known to strongly dislike animals including cats in particular. And yet, in her grocery store buggy was cat food, cat litter, and a cat bed. And he asked her why all of a sudden she had all this cat paraphernalia. Well, Pastor, all I can really say is that God gave my daughter a kitten. Please explain, said the pastor. Well, Pastor, my daughter's been after me to get her a kitten, and you know how strongly I dislike cats. So I have repeatedly told her there's no way I'm getting her a kitten. Well, two days ago, my daughter said, Mommy, if God wants me to have a kitten, can I keep it then? So I said, if God himself gives you a kitten, you can keep it. Pastor, you're not going to believe what happened next, she said. And the pastor said, try me. (laughs) And and she said, well, my daughter got down her knees in the backyard, and I heard her ask God for a kitten. Pastor, you're going to think I'm lying, but at that exact moment, a kitten came flying through the air and landed right in front of my daughter. I believe you, said the pastor. (laughs) Well, how about that? Well, that story makes me think 
of the new covenant we have in the blood of Jesus. So, uh, and why? Because we didn't deserve it. It just came out of nowhere for us. Forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. Uh, Every other religion on earth, including the old covenant, uh, has salvation kind of based on the things a man or woman does. At least the old covenant under Moses held out the possibility that if you did everything right, you'd be okay. And of course, we know because of sin nature and... um, sin uh, practices, that's not the way it works out. So salvation does not come. But the new covenant of grace, based on the completed work of Jesus Christ we've been reading about in Hebrews, features salvation kind of flying out of the air to us. And that's what the author celebrates here in chapter 8. So chapter 8, and uh, it's got a lot of words in it, but it's just 13 verses, and I'm going to read all 13 of them. He says, "...now this is the main point of the things we are saying." We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We've got a tabernacle here that the people erected, but the Old Testament Jews had a tabernacle they erected. But here we find out that there's a true tabernacle which the Lord erected that any other earthly uh, building, as temporary as all earthly buildings are, is based on. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses came down from the mountain and in the book of Exodus, we hear what the tabernacle dimensions were and God had given that up there. So the house of worship that they would have to go to, the instructions were given to Moses on the mountain. Verse 6, but now God has obtained, he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Again, one of the key words of the book of Hebrews, the word better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament. He's better than the rule. Moses. He's better than the priesthood of Levi. He's better than the angels. Uh, And he offers here, we're told, a better covenant uh, established on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, this is a long chapter, but don't miss that. He says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the title of this message is The New and Improved Covenant. And we're going to divide it into two sections and talk a little bit about each section, verses 1 through 7 and then verses 8 through 13. And so in verses 1 through 7, 
we see that the new covenant is an upgrade over the old covenant. Now, you know, we this past year have done a lot of upgrades at the tabernacle, and we continue to do them. And basically, it's just things that for a, a few years we've been deferring maintenance, and we're not deferring anymore. If it needs doing, we're doing it because, you know, you, you don't want to manage decline. You want to invest for growth, right? So we're doing that in lots of areas in, uh, you know, ministries all the way to, uh, you know, for the TLC, uh, we, uh, you know, fixed up the playground and uh, made it ready for the school year, as well as um, a new uh, little uh, lunchroom for them to eat in down there since it's a full day program. And then also going to do a children's playroom. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, we hope to have it done in time for school to start, but uh, we're just waiting on the uh, best purchase of equipment to do it right, you know, so that's what's happening there. But you've heard of things that are new and improved, right? I love going to Williamsburg uh, and seeing Colonial Virginia. And if you've ever been there, you loved it too. Back up in Waynesboro, we would go over to the city of Stanton, and they had a pretty neat place too called the Frontier Culture Museum. Has anybody here ever been to it? Uh, it goes back to frontier days and shows how they lived. And, and sometimes people that would tour come to our area, they'd say, I like that as much as Williamsburg, you know, finding out about life on the frontier. Because at one time, uh, Augusta County, Virginia, which Waynesboro and Stanton are both in, uh, went all the way to the other side of the Mississippi River because it was just all that part of Virginia. It was the largest county in uh, the country, you know, when it included all those other portions and stuff. So you got over the mountains, and what was the frontier? Stanton, Virginia, you know. Uh, so I'm so glad uh, we don't have to do things like they did in those days. Let me ask you some questions. Uh, would you take a washing machine over beating clothes on a rock any day? <laughs> I sure would. Uh, would you take an air conditioner over a handheld fan any day? Yeah, me too. Uh, I'll take a refrigerator over a block of ice any day, even though it's kind of cool to be in an ice house every once in a while. I'll take the convenience over a, uh, uh, of a microwave over a hot rock any day, you know. I'll take an automobile over a team of horses any day, although I think it's cool the times I've ridden horses and even ridden in carriages and stuff. Uh, if I had to take a long trip, I'd rather take it via car than a uh, horse, horse and a uh, team of horses. Um, <laughs> Those things are upgrades, right? Um, so they called it new and improved Tide because it was an upgrade. Although new Coke was a disaster, it wasn't an upgrade. Classic Coke was better. So the things that are supposed to not be tampered with, like the Word of God, and like classic Coke, right, should never be tampered with. So, uh, But that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. There was an old covenant. Now we're going to go gently through the old the covenants of the Old Testament because we have to be very careful to get it right and not make errors of teaching here like so many do in our day. Uh, each, each covenant had its place, and the fact that the Mosaic Law, part of the Old Testament teachings, the, so the Mosaic, when he talks about the Old Covenant, particularly in these passages, he's talking about the expectations of the Mosaic Law and not the unconditional, eternal, and literal promises made under the Abrahamic covenant and also the Davidic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant was more temporary. It was the um, ways God cared for His people until their Messiah came. And so it was pointing forward to the need of a Messiah. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll, we've talked about that different ways. So, but uh, let's... Um, Let's look at some of the ways the New Covenant's better than the Old Covenant, and we'll just walk right through these first seven verses. First of all, 
Jesus is a better high priest. Verse 1 tells us, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Aaron, the priest, sinned. Whenever he offered a sacrifice, he first had to make sure he was uh, forgiven of his sins through an atoning sacrifice. And then when he offered the Day of Atonement sacrifice once a year, he had to really uh, make sure that he uh, was you know, confessed up and you know, uh, forgiven. And then he would offer the sacrifices. So, uh, they, so he had to do a repeated process of seeking the Lord and getting forgiveness for sins. And they had to continually offer new sacrifices. And so sacrifice, 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 day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And then Jesus came and there was no more need for sacrifices because on the cross, the perfect priest offered the perfect sacrifice. He said, to tell us which means it is finished, paid in full, and so Jesus is a better high priest. But there's something else we learn from verse 1 because the second part says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So not only is Jesus a better high priest, Jesus is seated in a better place. Now, real estate agents say the key to selling a house is what? Location. Location, location, right? I was talking to uh, Betty Perkins' daughter uh, this past week. Uh, I was, you know, I saw Hilda at uh, Forever Young last night. I, I was going to tell her that I talked to Betty. She said, "I know. I talked to Betty after you did." You can't, you can't ever keep up. You know, Hilda knows it all. I thought I had one for her. She said, "I know. I know you talked to her." But uh, Hilda's daughter told me uh, that they put, uh, you know, Mama's house on the market. Uh, so Betty's house on the market this past week and sold immediately. Uh, so, um, you know, Betty. Uh, is in Richmond now and will stay there, and so we love her and pray for her and things. But the point is, right now, I don't know if it's the casino and people want to turn their homes into bed and breakfast or whatever and things. Uh, you know, we certainly don't, I don't want the casino to prosper, you know, for all the reasons that a crime and uh, sin comes with a casino and things. But you've heard, and I have heard too, people are selling their houses now. And it's happening because people want to uh, flip those houses around casinos and things. Well. That wasn't very spiritual to talk about, was it? Jesus is seated in a better place because, hey, heaven's a better place than earth, right? Uh, there's no sin there. God's there. Angels are worshiping him there. The saints are there. Later, there will be a new earth that's going to be much better than this earth. But Jesus is seated in a better place. Now, first part of the verse, he's a better priest than Aaron. Do you know Aaron, when he was on duty, didn't get to sit down? <laughs> there was always the next sacrifice to supervise. And so Aaron and his priest uh, uh, sons, they had to stand in the hot desert next to rotting carcasses and had to stand because the work was never done. But Jesus isn't standing at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because his earthly work is finished. Now you say, well, there is that one place, isn't there, Pastor Danny, where Stephen's being martyred? And uh, he pictures Jesus. He's able to look up and get a glimpse into heaven, and he sees the Son of God. He sees Jesus, the Son of Man. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And I think it was like this. Jesus had been seated next to the right hand of God, interceding for all the things on earth. But he saw what Stephen was doing and being faithful to the Lord amidst his martyrdom. And he said, pull back the veil. I want Stephen to see this. 
And I think Jesus was leading heaven in a standing ovation for a martyred son. And the moment Stephen was killed, his spirit left his body and was in heaven. Himself looking down and looking for the next ones to cheer on. I really believe that's what Hebrews had in mind in chapter 12. We're going to get there. We're in chapter 8 now. We're going to get to Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Sarah did that. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Joshua. All these different by faith things people did for God. And then chapter 12 says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us finish our own earthly course well. So Stephen got to see as he was about to be killed and join all the ones in heaven, he saw Jesus, I think, leading in the standing ovation. But uh, the point every other time that it talks about Jesus there is that he's seated uh, because the work is done. Better high priest, better place, seated in a better place. Well, in verse 2, and then it comes back again in verse 5, Jesus' tabernacle had a better builder. <laughs> you know, it's good to have a good builder when you're building a house, isn't it? Men constructed the tabernacle and then the temple, but God made the heavenly prototype. So uh, it's sad that Israel doesn't have a temple now. I think prophetically speaking, one day they will, and there will also be a millennial temple uh, on earth uh, when that time comes, when Jesus reigns on earth after his second coming. Uh, but, uh, you know, Solomon's temple uh, was glorious when they rebuilt the temple uh, in the days of Zerubbabel. Uh, it wasn't as glorious, and the glory wasn't there at that time. That's not going to come back until Jesus returns. Um, but um, then uh, King Herod put a lot of other things around that made it a glorious compound. The disciples were awed at it, and Jesus said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. But in verse 2, it says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And then verse 5, Serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to miss the, make the tabernacle. So there was a tabernacle that was a tent in the book of Exodus, and they took it down and put it back up as they went toward the promised land. Then one day, David was able to get the Ark of the Covenant, move it to Jerusalem. They built a temple there for the Ark to be in. It was desecrated and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They built another tabernacle. It again was destroyed uh, in the days of the um, Greek, Greek leader Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who's a horrible person. Um, and he uh, desecrated the temple by uh, turning it into an altar for Zeus instead of Yahweh and also offering pork uh, sacrifice on it, a pig sacrifice there, so things like that. Um, but uh, all temporary compared to uh, what Jesus is uh, doing and God has done in heaven. So we're, we're told both here and in Revelation to picture that they're actually all the earthly things were based on a heavenly design, the Ark of the Covenant, the, all those different things. And that's pretty cool to think about. So God's tabernacle is better the same way his sunset is better than the painting of it by a human artist. So I don't know if you've ever seen a beautiful painting of a sunset, but it doesn't compare when you get to see a beautiful sunset, does it? You know, uh, Is that in what? No, I'm using it as an analogy. Because better, right? So uh, because what does it say in verse 5? Uh, it said here uh, that um, serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what is in there, Charlie, that I'm, I'm trying to clearly say is that when Moses came down from the mountain and there was 
designed to build the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the th furniture of the tabernacle. And later those things were encased in gold by Solomon and put in his temple that he built for Yahweh that God let him do. God didn't need one. The highest heavens can't contain him, neither the lowest parts of earth, you know, all those different things. Um, but uh, there is a heavenly temple that these things were copies of here on earth. And the copies, he says, aren't as great as the heavenly reality. Pretty cool to think about. In the book of Revelation, we see smoke from the heavenly temple, right? And, and that again, around the throne and all that stuff. So, all right. Well, in verses 3 and 4, we see Jesus brought a better gift. It says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. So what did Jesus have to offer? Well, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So they brought sacrificial lambs over and over again. He brought himself. <laughs> Once to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So early in the Gospels, what does John the Baptist say? When he saw Jesus, what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they were all thinking, wait a second, we kill lambs. Those are sacrifices for our sins. Um, and so, uh, boy, uh, hey, let's get, see if we can get, give, her, and give anybody here extra credit for the day. Can you think of at least one Old Testament passage that those who heard John the Baptist say that should have been tracking with related to the expectation that our sins would be dealt with by the Messiah. I'll give you a hint. In that passage, about 20 times, it refers to the Messiah's death for sinners. It also refers to his uh, body not undergoing decay but also his uh, resurrection, that he'll prolong his days and see what his sacrifice has, has uh, brought to bear. The passage includes the statement, All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Can anybody give me that uh, chapter, that book and chapter of that? Okay, it's in Isaiah, and it's chapter 53. Isaiah 53. So, um, so much of the music we hear at Christmas time and then at Easter too refers back to that passage, and um, it is so wonderful uh, everything that's said there. But that's it's said so powerfully that way, isn't it? All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on Him. So yeah, there's one to tuck away for you. I would say like this: if you had to pick the ten most important chapters in the Bible. I think you got to put Isaiah 53 in there. So uh, you might want to uh, check that one out before the week is done. He brought a better gift himself to be the once and for all Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, you know, if, uh, if we loved each other enough in here, now I heard a great story last night, and only a couple of you heard this at the beginning. But uh, Junior Gunn, Last night was here sharing a little testimony related to his time as a Gideon. But I also asked him about life and marriage and things like that. And he mentioned his dear wife is buried uh, on the family farm. Uh, and he's got a nice headstone there. And on the headstone, 
it gives her birth date, it gives her death date, and it gets the date has I think on there the day they married, and they she died uh, just before what would have been their fiftieth anniversary. So it says on there we were married for eighteen thousand eight hundred and whatever days or whatever, and it's just so sweet, <laughs> it's so sweet uh, to think about that. Uh, so Junior probably would have laid down his life if he had the chance for his dear Lois, right? Uh, and so God doesn't necessarily love the killing of animals, but he needed to teach his people in the Old Testament days how serious sin was. So the whole point of animal sacrifice was they would know their sin was a big deal. Because when in the grand scheme of things, yes, humans are far more important than animals. So God didn't necessarily just enjoy that animals were die, but he need, dying, but he needed to make a point to his people all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God made the first animal sacrifice and made, took the clothing and covered up Adam and Eve after their shame and their sin and shame, after he had forgiven them. Uh, because what happens when you slit the throat of the lamb brought for the sacrifice? It's going to die. The blood being spilt means the life is being given. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Um, without the shedding of blood, the Old Testament says in Leviticus, there's no forgiveness of sins. So God wanted his people to know sin was a big deal. It deserved death. But if God killed a sinner every time they sinned, there'd be nobody on earth, right? So in his graciousness, he provided a way for Israel to deal with their sin before the Messiah came. One for one. Bring a lamb sacrifice. Uh, lay your hands on it as if you were transferring your sin to it. I believe you had to kill it there before the priest, and then the priest would take the blood and bring it to the altar, you know. One for one. Now, if a human cared enough about another, maybe if they were perfect sacrifice like the lamb was perfect, no blemished lamb could be brought, you know, and God was teaching them something about sin there too. But uh, so... Jimmy, because he loves Lois, may very well have said, yeah, I'll lay my down, life down for hers. If I can take her punishment on me, I die so she can live and go to heaven and be with God. Um, so if any human could do that, just one for one, right? Me for Charlie, Charlie for me, Harry for Maybell, Maybell for Harry, you know, et cetera, right? Um, but if God came to earth... And he made that sacrifice because he's God, not man. His sacrifice of himself in death, he could apply that to anyone he chose to throughout time and space because he's God. So he can make a multiple person offering in a way the lambs couldn't do and the way we couldn't do for each other. Pretty cool to think about. He did once for all. Now, of course, we know that he, he uh, loves us, but he's still not going to let rebels into heaven. We have to repent. We have to change our mind about uh, ourselves as a sinner, about him as the Savior, about how we receive salvation as a gift. There's not works we do to earn it. And we throw ourselves on the mercy of court. He forgives us of our sin. Our sin gets timelessly dealt with on the cross. His righteousness timelessly counts for us on the day of judgment. God the Father looks at us forevermore and sees the righteousness of Christ positionally. That doesn't excuse us from not growing in Christ during this time on earth, but positionally 
you will never be more righteous than the very moment you receive Christ because of that work of Christ on Calvary. Our sin dealt with on the cross, His righteousness given to us because of the power of His resurrection and that counting for us on Judgment Day. And so we have perfect standing before God because of that gift received. And positionally, we want the rest of our life to experience the uh, benefit of being saved and also lead others to Christ and grow. And he says, if you're truly saved, it's guaranteed that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Now, we have to factor in until the day of Christ because we're still going to be herky-jerky in our obedience and walk and, you know, going to need to apply 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Jesus brought a better gift. And then in verse 6, Jesus has a better ministry based on better promises. So his better ministry is based on relationship with God, not rules and rituals, as it says in verse 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. He's the, also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So his promises emphasize more what you can do than what you can't do. When you think of the Old Testament law, what do you think of mostly? Thou shalt not. And the thou shalt nots, the Ten Commandments, are largely phrased on what you're not supposed to do. But when you think of the New Testament, what do you think of? You think of thou shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those are Old Testament commands, but many times we got caught up in the thou shalt nots. But the New Testament reminds us so much of the thou shalts that uh, we want to do what previously we uh, didn't do. Um, the New Covenant makes clear that loving Jesus is the detail. So instead of getting caught up in all the details, loving Jesus is the details. That's why I sometimes say, and I wish every one of us could get it down, including myself, uh, yes, we're to be holy as the Lord is holy. He really means that. But what does it mean to be holy? And if you want to be like Jesus, I'm telling you, that's what holiness is. Now that I like. When I think of being holy as the things I should no longer do, well, then I, you know, it, it turns into negative thinking for me. And, and, and we need some negative things sometimes to frame our obedience to Christ. But the New Testament puts all the emphasis not on the have-tos, but the want-tos. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to do what he would do if he was in this situation. And so, man, wouldn't it be, would it change, would it change how we view a day if we thought of holiness as being like Jesus? I think that's what it is. I don't hear enough people say that. You know, I hear them scaring people with the word holy. <laughs> you know, and holiness is awesome, but at its core, it's being in love with Jesus and wanting to be like Jesus as you go through a day. And many of you model that better than I do sometimes. The new covenant's better than the old covenant. The old covenant was based on the ability of man to perform what was asked of him, and we failed miserably. The new covenant is based on the ability of Christ to perform what was asked of him, and he succeeded magnificently. So, I love it. Luke 22, 20, Likewise, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my, in my blood, which is shed for you, and it gives a better ministry. Um, you know, all the world's religions basically are something like the requirements of the old covenant. All the world's religions speak in some way of being like, life being like a giant scales, you know, the scales you weigh things on. And most of them picture if you do more good things than bad things, then God will accept you or the gods will accept you and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, because even Mohammed, when he when he died, he wasn't sure he was going to go to paradise and be with Allah. Um, he said, "You can't know such a thing." But those religious views could be summed up in the thought, "You reap what you sow," and that's actually a New Testament verse. Uh, you reap what you sow. Um, God has built the reap what you sow principle into the universe, and lots of Bible verses speak about the correspondence between the doer of good deeds being blessed on earth and the doer of bad deeds being cursed on earth. And certainly the world is a better place when we do good things rather than bad things, godly things rather than ungodly things. Um, and so that reap what you sow principle does come out. A person that's promiscuous is more likely to get an STD probably. If, if you smoke, uh, you're probably taking a few years off your life. If you abuse your spouse, you deserve to lose them. If you break the law, you suffer the consequences. So there's a lot of truth in the statement, you reap what you sow. But here's the problem. God's standard for our salvation is not just doing more good things than bad things. God's standard is absolute perfection. And that's where sometimes I think our Jewish friends got off track. They made the Old Testament law and obedience to it an end in itself when salvation couldn't really come because we'd have to do everything completely right all the time to get salvation through the checklist. So, you know, it's like a test. You'd have to make a hundred every time to be acceptable God's sight if you, you did it that way. But once you failed, you failed and you need forgiveness, you need a savior, right? So the law does several things for us. One of the things it shows us what's on the test. <laughs> the other thing it shows us that we we're flunking. We're not. If pass fails a hundred, we fail. Uh, but Jesus passed for us, so it shows our need of a redeemer. And of course, the redeemer came in the fullness of time. Um, none of us is absolutely perfect, so most of us are a convoluted mixture of good and bad deeds. Uh, we're in trouble if the scale is all there is. That was, that's the point there. Um, but fortunately, the Bible testifies that Jesus was and is perfect. And so it teaches that he died in our place of judgment on an old rugged cross. And it makes us this offer. If we align ourselves with him by faith, we're going to experience forgiveness of our sins because of this new and improved covenant with mankind. So we're so thankful for that. Uh, I want to read you something. And this was one of the best statements on understanding uh, that uh, we have to have faith in Jesus and be recipients of God's grace. Uh, as the starting place for everything else we do for God. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. Uh, and it actually came by uh, a rocker, Bono of U2. Uh, so he was being interviewed. Listen to this. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. All Christians can agree with that. We're holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins to the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Isn't that good? Uh, a reporter one time asked him, they said, Hey, listen, uh, you're so cool, we thought you'd be a karma guy. And he said, Are you kidding? Karma teaches you get what you deserve. And if I get what I deserve, I'm going to hell. He said, I'm holding out for grace. 
just like he said in the interview here, I'm holding out for grace, holding out that God loved me enough that he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And uh, he may have some other problems, but he gets grace, which is great. Okay, so the first seven verses, now we'll do verses 8 through 12. The new covenant is not a new idea, you guys, but a prophecy fulfilled. And the reason I took so much time on the first verses, and we're going pretty rapidly through these last ones, is because verses 8 through 12 that I read to you earlier are really just Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 restated. It's the verses about the new covenant that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. Um, and they really illustrate the change Jesus brings as he fulfills all the Old Testament calls for and ushers in the new covenant. So the old covenant, the Mosaic law, primarily presented external religion, doing the right thing. The new covenant primarily presents internal relationship with God, being the right thing through faith in Jesus. So yeah, this is why we bring Abraham back in. Because Genesis 15, 6, one of the key verses to understanding uh, God's teaching on salvation by justification through faith. Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God and his faith was counted as righteousness. What was counted as righteousness? Abraham's own righteousness? No, his faith in God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And Romans 5, 1, says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And just three verses later, I didn't put it in your notes, but Romans 5, 4 says, to the one who does not work, but, believe, but who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then it brings back up the Genesis verse. Pretty cool, huh? So, now, faith will work. Faith will work. Once you get saved, faith working through love will happen because you're in Christ and abiding in Him. You will bear fruit. You know, if you become a Jesus tree, you'll bear Jesus fruit, right? But um, it's not that you do the works to save you. It's that you're saved by faith and then works flow from faith, uh, which is, you know, we can't remind ourselves of those things enough, particularly in the day we live in. Because uh, there are, um, the gospel's kind of gotten murky uh, with some of our uh, young preachers and excited young folks. They, they rightly, I should say this, they rightly are critical of those who presume on God's grace and who talk about a shallow faith that may not even be saving faith. So they're rightly worried about those who say they know Jesus, but there's no fruit of it even years later, you know. And um, so, so they're rightly concerned about presenting grace as cheap grace, you know, or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, sometimes they muddy the waters and they almost make people afraid that unless they're doing works now to please Jesus, they won't be saved. We can't please Jesus in and of ourselves. So we're justified by faith. And with that foundation, we go on to seek his face, to learn from him, to bear fruit in every area of life. But it's not to save us or to keep us saved. Faith does that. I did believe, I do believe, I will believe. Uh, and then we do what Jesus asks us to do because we love him back. <laughs> He's our Lord now. He's our Savior now, right? So we want to do what he says. Um, but uh, we want to make clear that we don't muddy 
that salvation comes as an act of uh, God's grace we receive through faith and uh, that uh, we, we didn't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to lose it. Uh, we can't do anything to keep it. We just keep believing and keep acting on that faith. Amen. All right. Well, we're almost uh, down the stretch here. I like how John Bunyan said it. Y'all know John Bunyan's my hero. Pilgrim's Progress is my favorite book after the Bible. Read it every January to start the year between Christmas and mid-January. Um, and uh, John Bunyan had the greatest quote when he th talked about this new and better covenant with Jesus and faith in him. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. Isn't that great? That's so good. Verse 13, the new covenant makes the civil law part of the old covenant obsolete. Elsewhere, I've taught you guys about the three parts of the Old Testament law. The moral law, which is applicable for all time. You know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. You know, that's all repeated in the pages of the New Testament. Expectations of Christians, just like it was in the Ten Commandments. Timeless. Then there's the priestly law which is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've already seen those verses in Hebrews. And there was the civil law that Israel had. Don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish, what to do on a Sabbath, you know, all those different things. And all of those have now become what we would say is obsolete. And that's what it's talking about here now that Christ has come. They're not where we fixate. We fixate on faith in Christ and doing what he says, loving people into the kingdom, uh, you know, building up his church through using our spiritual gifts. Um, and that's so important that we, we we, we don't forget that. So the Christian looks and says, we can still learn a lot about the heart of God and the character of God when we think about that civil law. He was looking out for people, usually the most vulnerable among Israel. Um, so I love reading those things and trying to figure out why God's got it there, you know, to protect somebody and stuff. But those teachings there kind of are like the scaffolding on a building that you pull off the building once the building's done. That's what Moses is uh, Sorry, the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here. When you learn how to ride a bike, you don't need the training wheels anymore. A civil part of the law was like that. Um, the way Galatians says it is the law was our guardian to lead us to Christ, to make us know our need and to get us ready to receive Christ. Now that faith in Christ has come, we're no longer under that guardian. Uh, so uh, I hope that makes sense. Um, the author of Hebrews probably writes this just before the temple is destroyed, or he's writing it just after it was destroyed to encourage those Jewish Christians that they don't need to worry about whether it ever gets rebuilt. So that, that could be happening here too. Because do you remember when the Jewish temple was destroyed in, uh, after Christ? So A.D. 70, the Roman troops destroy the temple again, and it's never existed since then. So we're nearly up to 2,000 years now. There hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem. So people of faith have had, to, of Jewish faith that becomes Christian faith, you know, for the Jewish Christians, uh, they, they've had to now process for all this time the fact that they don't have a temple to go to. Now, many of them are making plans to build it, you know, one day. But right now it's not there. It, there will be a temple again. Uh, but um, he is even here trying to point Jew and Gentile Christians alike. And most of the, it's, written, it's called Hebrews because these were Jewish background Christians, most of them, you know. So he's trying to orient them to the fact there, even if our earthly temples are gone, God is in, our, in the heavenly temple. He's there. 
We don't have anything to worry about. And he goes even further than that. He says, now we're temples because the Holy Spirit abides inside of us, right? And when we go to church and two or three gather in his name, then he's right there in the midst of them too in a special, special way. Okay. Uh, I want to tell you a story as we close here. Um, I really like what a man named Sunder Singh um, Sunder Singh was an Indian Christian uh, who loved the Lord so much, probably killed for the faith one day up in Nepal or something like that. They never found his body again. My guess is he was killed for the faith or attacked by animals in the high mountains and stuff. He went to, from India, he went to some of the highest mountains in the Himalayas and things to find villages and present Jesus to people. So Sundar was traveling high in the Himalayan mountains hoping to take the gospel to a remote village. His guide was an experienced Nepalese mountain climber. The particular stretch they were on required them to walk across a narrow path where they could easily fall. They were very cold and they were running out of sunlight when Sunder spotted something below and stopped for a moment. He immediately realized that it was a man who had fallen and was hurt. He wanted to stop and help, but the guide protested that they would barely make it to the village by nightfall alone, let alone if they stopped to help the man. So he refused to help Sundar and he continued on toward the village. Sundar had to help the man. His Christian faith demanded it of him. And so he descended down to where the man was and found him both alive and coherent. He put the man on his back and put his blanket around both of them and began again to go toward the village. The task was difficult, but God was with Sundar. And after a while, he saw the village in sight. When he was about 100 yards away, he stepped on something in front of him. He looked down and saw his guide his eyes frozen open, his hands frozen to his face, the man was dead. Sundar walked the rest of the way to the village realizing that the combined body heat of himself and the man he was carrying had kept them both alive. The law of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. And when we trust Jesus, uh, man, it's like <laughs> Jesus is carrying us and he's going to get us to the other side, just like Sunder Sang got, got that man alive there. Pretty cool. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.